Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Um, we're going to talk about something that all of us in the furniture and the uh, restoration field come across kind of at the end of the game. Knobs and latches. Our ancestors invested a striking level of quality in the workmanship, design, and materials for such seemingly mundane objects as doorknobs and latches. From the graceful simplicity of, of an early hand-wrought latch to be intricate, machine-made designs embossed in the Victorian doorknob, these overlooked details prove once again that old houses provide their owners with numerous bonuses, not available from today's cookie-cutter homes. Opening and closing doors is something we do do every many times a day, and there's some small pleasure derived from feeling, gripping that knob, holding it, squeezing it, feeling its, uh, its shape in your hands. The hefty grip of a solid brass knob, and from hearing the satisfying clunk of a latch bar dropping into its place. So uh, there's a couple latch bars in the Shivers house, and it's a distinctive clunk as that latch drops down, an 18th century latch, nothing like it. The design of knobs and latches reflected the architectural tastes of their time. Their materials and fabrication reflected America's evolving building and technologies. And because certain types were popular during certain eras, the original doorknobs and latches of an old house can offer important clues for determining its age. So let's talk about early door latches. Latches were popular up to this century because factory-made versions were less expensive and easier to install than doorknobs. But only houses built before 1840 are likely to have door latches rather than knobs throughout. Doorknobs eventually became the norm, although latches were still used in less conspicuous places, attic, basement, closets, and screen doors, as well as barns, garages, and other outbuildings. The first <coughs> door latches were used in this country were probably rudimentary, handcrafted devices of wood, the kind that can still be found in many old houses. Barns and hundreds of cabins, say, throughout the Tennessee mountains. These and all subsequent latches worked on the same simple principle. A latch bar is attached and it's hinged to the other end of the door, and its other end, extending beyond the face of the door, rests in a notched keeper, a.k.a a catch or a strike, which attaches to the face of the door jamb. To open the door, you simply raise the latch bar in the earliest variations. The latch bar could be raised on the opposite side of the door by pulling a latch string that was threaded through the door in the door and tied to the latch bar. Wrought iron latches were known in Europe and China as early as the 13th century. By the early 1700s, iron latches were commonly used in America. Many were imported, primarily from England, but local blacksmiths soon produced well-made examples. These hand-wrought iron latches are known 
as Suffolk latches. Now a generic term, but initially it's identified latch from the Suffolk regions of England. Each part of a Suffolk latch was handcrafted just like the other element of the 18th century house. Because they were hand-wrought, Suffolk latches have their inevitable quirks and imperfections. They don't always work all the time. But that's precisely why they're so valued today. They're replicas from an age of individual craftsmanship. The five pieces of a typical Suffolk latch were hammered out by blacksmiths. The curved grasp, the thumb latch, which has a thumb press at one end and protrudes through the door at the other. The latch bar, the keeper, and a staple or retainer, which holds the latch bar against the door. The flattened out ends called cusps of the grasp were often hammered into attractive shapes. By far the most prevalent shape was the bean, but heart, spade, fleur-de-lis, and diamond-shaped cusp were also common in the early 18th century. Fancier latch designs, such as the tulip or pine tree, were quite rare. But most elaborately designed Suffolk latches seem to have come from Massachusetts, the Connecticut Valley, southeastern Pennsylvania, German immigrant blacksmiths carried on the tradition of their homelands, were particularly adept in producing attractive latches. Their prime examples should be considered part of the best folk art traditions. Out-of-the-way doors, such as attics, were less likely to have been replaced and are less likely to have been replaced and, I would say, are more likely places to find surviving original material or fabric. So, if you do not have any in your house, or if you find just one, treasure them zealously. In the earliest 18th century versions, the thumb latch penetrates through the middle of the upper cusp and has a straight end protruding from the back side of the door. In later examples, after 1800s, the thumb latch penetrates the shank of the grasp, the cusp, and the opposite end is often curved down to facilitate the lifting of the bar. The use of Suffolk latches died out in the early 19th century, but they enjoyed a revival during the arts and crafts era in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Arts and crafts architects appreciated the latches' handcrafted quality and their late medieval associations. Fine, hand-wrought revival examples in iron and copper can be found in turn-of-the-century homes in the Tudor, Norman, and craftsman styles. Never, never once to let an opportunity go by, early 20th century hardware manufacturers such as Stanley, Yale, and Sargent picked up on the fad and mass-produced machine-made Suffolk latches. These versions can be found on countless 1920s and 30s homes and were advertised as being equally appropriate for English colonial or Spanish Revival homes. So let's move into spring latches. Spring latches, although not nearly as common as Suffolk latches, were also popular in the early, late 18th and early 19th century homes. They're also called plate latches 
because the lifting mechanism is fixed to a plate of iron, which in turn is attached to the door face. Two shapes are common for these plates, square and keyhole. Most spring latches have a small brass knob attached to a cam which, when turned, lifts the latch bar. A hefty spring normally holds the latch down unless the knob is turned. Apparently, most spring latches were imported only from England, not made here. So, during the 1830s and 40s, a similar type of latch was popular, the carpenter lock, a name derived from the lock's inventor. Like earlier spring latches, carpenter locks had small brass knobs that raised a latch bar. However, many of the parts of a carpenter lock were machine-made and often closed in an iron case, like a rim or box lock. Another similar latching device, popular during the 1750 to 1850 period, was the Dutch elbow lock. Again, the mechanism is encased in a surface-mounted iron box. But instead of a brass knob or thumb latch, a lever-like handle with a graceful elbow bend excuse me, was used to raise the latch bar. Dutch elbow latches were most prevalent in German settled areas. Dutch is a mispronunciation of Deutsch, meaning German. Dutch elbow, carpenter, or spring latches were often signed or stamped with the name of their makers. Like well-designed Suffolk latches, all these early latches and devices are highly prized by collectors, and they are a definitive plus to any old house where they have survived and want to add a great detail to authenticity. Norfolk latches. Norfolk latches mark a tradition from handcrafted hardware to machine-made hardware. These latches were nearly identical in their operation to Suffolk latches, but their major parts are no longer hand-wrought. The grasp of the Suffolk latch often was cast iron and attached to a backplate made of machine-rolled sheet iron. Although they lacked the individual craftsmanship and artistic designs of the earlier latches, Norfolk latches were cheaper to make and more readily available to the average homeowner. They also had several minor design improvements over earlier types. The keeper was often mortised into the side of the door jamb instead of surface mounted on its face. The lift bar commonly had a small knob which made it easier to lift, and an integral locking lever was sometimes added to affix the lift bar for security. Earlier latches used wedges or pins to immobilize the bar for locking purposes. Norfolk latches still survive in great numbers because of their area of popularity, although relatively short, 1800 to 1840, coincided with a period of great population growth and house building. Norfolk latches of fairly standardized designs can be found in old houses from the East Coast to the Midwest to the Deep South. So let's talk about Blake and Victorian latches. Latches made entirely of cast iron appeared in the 1840s and remained popular into this century. Thomas Blake's took some of the earliest patents for these devices, so they've come to be known as the Blake latches, 
although other manufacturers also made them. Victorian era latches, because they're still cast, often had low relief ornament over every available surface. The outlined shapes of the backplate, grass, etc., took on lively, curvy, linear forms. Earlier latches would have have up to seven separate pieces to be assembled and attached. Blake latches came pre-assembled in three pieces: the grass slash thumb piece, the lift thash, that um, slash backplate assembly, and the keeper. Victorian lashes were mass assembled by the tens of thousands and sold through catalogs and hardware dealers. They superseded the Suffolk and the Norfolk latches and even maintained a market for use on out-of-the-way doors long after doorknobs and mortise locks became the norm. So let's go to doorknobs. Doorknobs were used in some colonial houses throughout the 1700s, usually in conjunction with rim locks or spring latches. Doorknobs used with mortise locks were occasionally found in the best Georgian homes. And, and just a word about something like, uh, you know, uh, thinking about these Victorian glass knobs. I mean, a knob has got to feel good in your hand. And, and a Victorian glass knob just doesn't get that. And uh, working in uh, a client's house uh, several weeks ago, and uh, it's a new house, um, uh, house that's probably worth, uh, you know, to build a million and a half to two million dollars. And just, just a word about feeling these touching points of houses. It's very important because uh, um, some of the house, this particular house, the railings were so rough and so poorly finished railings going up the stairs, the newel post knobs, and things like that. Every time they would go up, they'd have maybe 10 or 15 touching points on these areas, and it made them angrier and angrier over the last couple of years that this local builder finished this in the god-awful way that he did with sawdust and dirt in the finish, and it was a very rough experience for the hands. So I came in and had to uh, smooth out and uh, wax down these areas, and, and now they're very happy. But it's no different than uh, um, I've seen clients that when they st when I was building a lot of furniture in the 90s, building an armchair, one of the most important things, two, two places, the back of the arm, the top of the crest rail, clients tend to put their hands there, they pull it out, they move it around the chairs, or when they're sitting in the, in the chair, where their forearm rests and where their hands are grasping the, uh, the ends of the arms. These all have to be perfect, perfectly smooth. It has to be a tactile feel. That's why I carved these the way I did when I did them. So, so uh, anyway, so yeah. So these, uh, these wonderful doorknobs found on some of the best Georgian houses and some early Moravian settlement dwellings had unusual knobs shaped like a clenched fist. And you can find a lot of these up in the Bethlehem, Pennsylvania area. But until the early 1800s, Latches were the norm for most doors in the average house. So two developments changed this. The ability to mass-produce cast-iron mortise locks and the widespread use of factory-made panel doors thick enough to accommodate mortise locks. So the Greek revival houses of the 1840s and 50s were the first to incorporate the widespread use of doorknobs. Doorknobs were made from many materials, expensive silver, ivory, marble, glass, and inexpensive wood, 
glass, ceramic, cast iron. The typical house might have higher quality knobs in important spaces such as the first floor parlors, entries, or grand reception rooms. Elsewhere knobs would be from the middle of the line stock of hardware companies. The following were the most common kinds of knobs listed more or less in chronological order. So some of the best ones sought after in the different shapes that have a good tactile feel to the hand, brass. Seen from the 1700s on, brass knobs have always been a benchmark of quality. Early examples were relatively small in size and round or oval in shape. The best were solid cast brass. True brass is an alloy of copper and zinc and has a yellowish or golden tone. So-called India brass, which has lower proportion of copper, is whiter. Pre-Victorian examples were plain and unadorned. Brass knobs have never completely fallen out of favor, although at times they were less common due to their relative expense. During the early 20th century, brass knobs with simple molded or beaded rims became very popular again. Next, porcelain. Plain or decorated, fine white china knobs were popular in France and in England and were imp imported to this country in limited numbers in the 1700s. The popularity of the sturdy, all-American version began around 1840, when American pottery companies started mass-producing them. These white porcelain knobs remained in demand into this century and were used in every style of house, but they were perhaps most associated with Greek Revival, Italianate, and other early Victorian styles. Porcelain is a fine, white, hard earthenware with a transparent glaze. Like other types of earthenware, knobs, porcelain knobs, were first molded, kiln-fired, glazed, then refired. The completed body was then affixed to a cast iron base or brass shank. Many old porcelain knobs have a network of hairline cracks called crazing, which was acquired either intentionally or unintentionally during their manufacture. If you have crazed porcelain knobs, don't worry about them. They're structurally sound and the crazing adds to the attractive patina of age. White porcelain knobs were often paired with black rim locks, a classic and pleasing combination of visualization which was popular into this century throughout the country. Black knobs. These are sort of black ebony counterpart of white porcelain knobs made from red pottery clay with a baked on black glaze called jet. They were popular from around 1860 to the 1930s and were used in all types of houses, primarily a middle of the line product. A brown mineral. These multi-toned pottery knobs are commonly known as mineral knobs. Potteries in Bennington, Vermont were early but short-lived makers of these type knobs, as they're usually referred to as Bennington knobs, although most of them were made in other hardware companies. Many brown mineral knobs have a distinctive two-toned finish that in it imitates marble. This effect was achieved by swirling together two colors of clay or by sponging, splatting, or dipping in a second slip color, which gave them an attractive highlight. So not surprisingly, brown mineral knobs became popular in the Greek Revival era. 
when many of the decorative art practices for homes were expensive yet attractive, attempts at falsifying more expensive materials, such as false wood grain paint finishes, wall stenciling, veneers, and marbleizing. Let's talk about glass knobs. Early cut glass and crystal knobs can be found in some very high-styled 18th-century houses. By 1834, Boston newspapers were advertising glass knobs of many kinds, but most glass knobs date from the 1850s and on. Most were pressed or molded, evolving from the sandwich glass tradition. The majority of glass knobs were made by the Piermont Glass Company, but were mounted and sold through many, many established hardware companies. Beside the round and oval shapes of the 1800s, octagon and other fastened shapes became popular in the early 20th century. Overlays of color, such as ruby or blue, were sometimes applied to the so-called art glass knobs, which were particularly popular down south. Glass knobs are associated with early Victorian Italianate houses. They were still used during the later Victorian times, but were less popular than the other kinds of knobs. During the first half of the century, they enjoyed a revival and could be found in virtually any kind of post-Victorian house, particularly colonial revivals and such utilitarian types as four squares. A fairly uncommon variation of the glass knob is a silvered mirrored knob, which was produced by coating the blown inside cavity with a silver substance. These were mostly reserved for high-styled homes in the mid to late 19th century. And let's talk about wooden knobs. Their heyday was the mid-1800s. Most were made into England mills, rosewood, ironwood, and other exotic species were used. Wooden knobs were usually plain, but sometimes had incised lines or a beaded edge around the rim. Occasionally, designs were pressed or stamped in. Because they were less durable, they were much more, were much more often replaced. So all wooden knobs are very rare today and demand a higher price. Ornamental Victorian knobs. Highly ornate designs executed in bronze or brass were the epitome of high Victorian doorknob manufacturers. So these knobs were pioneered in the 1870s by the Russell and Irwin Companies of Connecticut. By the early 1880s, many hardware manufacturers were producing them. Most better-than-average Victorian houses had some ornamental bronze knobs. Bronze is an alloy of copper, tin, and zinc, which is more reddish in color than brass. Even the commas speck-built Victorian house could have a wrought or cast ornamental knob in a few selected patterns from such mail-order houses as Ward's or even Sears. The ornamental metal knobs from, say, 1860 to 1870 were embellished with the naturalistic forms favored by then popular Rococo revival decorative style. Not only the face of the knob, but also the accompanying backplates, which were very common by this time, were covered with designs of ivory, <coughs> interwinding vines, fleur-de-lis, and even dogs, lions, and human forms. Many of the shapes and motifs were the same as those on the furniture and ornamental plasterwork of the day. The best hardware manufacturers had their own artists who created designs inspired by 
a host of Greek, Gothic, French, Renaissance, and other exotic sources, all contributing to the typical Victorian hodgepodge. During the late 1880s and into the 90s, the East Lake influence, the angular geometric forms, stylized flower, sunflower, and tulip shapes, zigzag and incised lines was heavily felt, not only on knobs, but also on the back plates, hinges, strikes, mail slots, and other door hardware. Turn-of-the-century nouveau doorknob designs, popular in Europe, found only occasional use in America. Instead, we gradually returned to the less fussy motifs of the colonial revival. During the teens, 20s, and 30s, in-style doorknob ornaments were pretty much limited to rim beading or edge moldings on rope, egg and dart, or fluted design backplates, which were often laid out in oval shapes. Now let's talk about plated knobs. Many Victorian and post-Victorian knobs were plated. Nickel plate was most common, although it didn't hold up all that well. The base metal could be cast iron, zinc, brass, um, or cast iron which to help to stop rusting. So the nickel plate eliminated the need for frequent polishing required by brass or the bronze knobs, which is a great help. Many Victorian era mounted ornamental knobs had a two-toned effect. For example, the background of the cast iron base metal could be Japan black and the raised highlights electroplated with a polished bronze. This common effect was sometimes called Geneva bronzed. Knobs were also plated and anodized copper, which were available in a bright, dark, and antique finish. Chrome plated appeared in the 1930s and was popular for bathroom and kitchen doors. Next is plastic knobs. Man-made plastic knobs have been around since the early 1800s. A composition wood material was used for Victorian knobs and could be cast with ornamental designs. The early 1900s brought Bakelite, celluloid, and Lucite knobs, all part of the streamlined, quote, modern movement. Houses of the 1930s and 1950s era often had Art Deco-inspired knobs, particularly for kitchen or bathroom doors. Although the knobs themselves were generally plain, the corresponding backplates had stylized zigzags, stepped or chevron designs, or low-relief fluting. So replacing latches and knobs, let's talk about that, when, when this needs to be. So fortunately, many old houses retained much of their original door hardware. It was well made and, and works well, but occasionally there will be missing knobs. More often, original hardware will have been replaced by modern knobs. In either case, you may want to install appropriate antique or reproduction knobs and or latches. So <clears throat> this... Uh, this talk gives you some direction regarding the appropriate hardware for the period and style of your house. But consider, too, high, the high-quality level of the house's details. Only high-styled, expensive homes would have had top-of-the-line doorknobs. The majority of homes utilized the commonly available, moderately-priced knobs and latches of the day. The range included simple Suffolk latches, Norfolk latches, Blake latches, porcelain, mineral, pressed glass, nickel plated, 
cast iron, and relatively simple ornamental brass knobs. Secondary doors on upper floors, closets, etc. had even simpler hardware. So resist the urge to early up when replacing door hardware. Handmade Suffolk latches have a great aesthetic and romantic appeal for many people, but they would be inappropriate in the Victorian house. But also, don't fret on all the knobs or latches in a house that don't have to match. This is not a suite. Most old houses had a mix of them. Old doors can provide clues to what missing latches or knobs were like. Check for shadow or paint lines that indicate outlines of removed plates, old screw holes, mortises, or spindle holes will at least reveal the relative size and location of the original hardware. One of the best ways to determine the, <clears throat> the nature of missing pieces is to study surviving original hinges, strike plates, back plates, and escutcheons. Wrought iron strap hinges on a door probably indicate that they were originally Suffolk latches too. Early cast iron butt hinges went with Suffolk, or went with Norfolk latches, ceramic knobs, etc. Ornamental bronze knobs were often accompanied by decorative bronze hinges and strike plates. Before buying replacement parts, check the door's thickness, rail size, and swing. Somewhere, some hardware is specific to inward, outward, left, or right swinging doors. Traditionally, both knobs and latches were located on the horizontal center line of the door's center rail. Be sure there's enough space at the bottom to accommodate the replacement hardware. So let's talk about salvage and reproductions. One easy solution to missing hardware is to salvage or relocate knobs and latches from elsewhere in the house. Prime candidates for this are the little seen knobs from the backsides of closets, attics, or cellar doors. Antique knobs and latches can be obtained from building salvage centers. Most will have door hardware, but getting exactly what you want may be hit or miss proposition. Some antique shops and mailwood especially outfits also sell old hardware. If you're paying a premium for authentic antique hardware, beware of fakes. A dealer's reputation is always your best assurance. Uneven wear, patina, worn edges, and play in the mechanisms are signs of age. Evenly spaced hammer marks on wrought iron should raise suspicions. Try to buy old latches that have all their pieces, thumb latch, lift bar, keeper, retainer, etc. The various pieces of doorknob sets are less critical. Spindle sizes were standardized and will fit a variety of knobs. However, Obtaining the matching strike plates, rosettes, and back plates is always a plus. Many companies are now reproducing accurate varieties and versions of old latches and knobs. Almost all of the common types of materials are available, so I've listed some of the sources. But there are many more. Reproductions can run the gamut from cheap imitations to very expensive custom-made hardware recreations of architectural designs using traditional materials and methods. These are the best. So rehabilitating knobs and latches. Not so much can go wrong with old knobs and latches. The most common problem is loose doorknobs. This is usually fixed by loosening the set screw at the base of the knob, pushing the knob snug, not too tight against the rosette and retightening the screw. 
Most old spindles had several screw holes or machine threaded sides. The set screw should be tightened into these, not the flat side of the spindle. Broken wrought iron pieces can be repaired by local blacksmiths. They're still around in most areas. There's not a lot of them, but there are still a few. And uh, one of the more famous in this uh, tri-state area is Cauldron, and he's over in the town of Westchester, Pennsylvania. Cast iron is much more problematic. It is brittle and very hard to repair. If a cast iron piece is unusable, a replacement is probably the easiest solution. Foundries that do custom work can recast pieces using the original twin piece of a model. You can strip paint from knobs and latches with conventional chemical strippers. Of course, it's easier if the hardware is removed first. So try a test patch and see if there's an adverse effect on the underlying material. Over the years, many people have successfully removed paint from their metal knobs with numerous homemade concoctions, including solutions of baking soda, ash, vinegar, and salt. A toothbrush is good for removing loosened paint from ornamental knobs. Be careful when cleaning plated knobs. Use a magnet to determine if its iron or steel is beneath what you suspect to be a plated knob. Harsh abrasives, cleaners, and strippers may erode the plating. <clears throat> Replating can normally be redone only by professionals. So check this with plating or metal finishers, say in the yellow pages or on Google. Glass, porcelain, mineral, or nickel-plated or chrome-plated knobs normally don't need anything more than an occasional simple cleaning with mild soap and water to keep them looking good. Rod and cast iron can be painted with black enamel or stove black, if needed, to reduce the rusting. Brass, bronze, and copper are problems, however. These metals will inevitably oxidize to a darkened patina. Many people can live with this antique look, but if you're committed to a bright finish, all but the most stubborn tarnish can be removed with the numerous commercial cleaners made for these metals. Keeping them polished is mostly a matter of regular, frequent cleaning. A protective lacquer coat can retard tarnishing, but don't, doesn't cure it. So, uh, this is Greg Perry. Let me, uh, you know, some, some common, uh, I'm just going to run down the list of some common suppliers of hardware I've used. Um, Acor Manufacturing Company in Massachusetts. Uh, Baldwin Brass Manufacturing in Reading, Pennsylvania. Uh, one of the premier ones in the tri-state area is Ball & Ball. They're an ex-MPA. Um, Horton Brass is, um, I know them well. I've dealt with them for over 35 years. And they're in Cromwell, Connecticut. Um, Lee Valley Tools, Ontario, Ottawa, Canada. Renovator Supply, Millers Falls, Minnesota. Restoration Works, Inc., Buffalo, New York. Um, and even the Williamsburg Blacksmiths down in historic Williamsburg, okay? Um, and they can also help you with that. So, And there's a, there's a plethora of others that I'm not listing, but these are some of the ones that I've dealt with. And, uh, you know, it's just a, a, a search away on Google to find it. But anyway, so that a rather long episode here, but, uh, you know, uh, cherish these uh, historic pieces of, architectural detail that are on your house and 
and try to make them right, you know, and, and don't don't try to, to backdate the period too much when you're replacing latches and various types of knobs. So, um, you know, so good luck to everyone out there. It's, it's a huge search and it does take time for this hardware. So uh, this is Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, and this is uh, our uh, hundred and I believe the 199th episode. So we're approaching the 200th mark, which um, probably we'll get into tomorrow. And uh, but I, I guess uh, looking at the clock, it is already tomorrow. So later on today, we'll hit the 200 mark, the 200 episode. So uh, thanks for listening, Greg Perry.